I was reading the New Yorker magazine a few weeks ago, and there was a scientist trying to explain multiple universes. And somebody said to him, I just cannot imagine multiple universes. And the scientist said, if you hadn't been born into this one, could you imagine it? I mean, look around as if you were seeing it for the first time. This. Could you figure it out? What was going on? Tonight I want to talk about the path of the fool. Which I think is probably the path you're on. And the secret teaching is to acknowledge it and embrace it. It's a venerable, honored tradition. As far as we can tell, dating back to 2,500, 3,000 years ago, and the Taoists in China, Chuangzi, Laozi, who realized that we were all at the mercy of such great forces, universal forces, the forces of nature, that just about all we could do was surrender, to go with the flow. As Chuangzi once said, do you really think you can take over the universe and improve it? They also came to the realization that they really didn't know anything about what was going on. They were actually proud of it. Uh, Lao Tzu scoffs at people who claim to know. He states, Others are sharp and clever. I alone am dull and stupid. (laughs) And Chuangzi came up with one of my favorite lines. Those who know they are fools are not the biggest fools. Of course, Lao Tzu put it another way. He said, uh, those who speak don't know, and those who know don't speak. But can you trust that line? Chuangzi. Where can I find a man who's forgotten words? I would like to have a word with him. (laughs) In order to realize and be exposed to your own foolishness, I suggest that you try meditation. You look and realize there is this crazy mind that you didn't order And you go around uh, thinking that you're kind of in charge of yourself and your mind and the world. and, And you sit down and start to meditate and you realize you're not in charge. Your mind has a mind of its own. It has plans and fantasies and regrets. And without even consulting you, it just 
goes and goes. And then you get up from your meditation and start going about your life again as if it was all yours, all, all the thoughts are yours and controlled by you and fooled again. I'm always amazed. I, my, that was the, it was such a, a mind-blowing moment when I first did a meditation retreat and realized really how much of my life is lived on these old patterns of thinking and this, this animal, these animal instincts that are flowing through me. I thought I was in charge. The Buddha thought that we were all somewhat fools and neurotic and didn't really, after his enlightenment, didn't want to teach. He said, this is, it'll be impossible to tell them, you know. But then Brahma came down and said, Buddha, there are some people who just have a little dust in their eyes. You must teach, you must teach to help alleviate the suffering of the world. So he agreed. And you're the ones. You're the ones with just a little dust in your eyes. Recently I reflected on the irony of doing this practice. And... and Realized that for the first half of my life, the first two-thirds of my life, I had uh, studied how to think. And now the last part of my life, I am trying to learn how to ignore my thinking. (laughs) The irony of that. I think that I actually started a meditation practice because I realized that my mind had a thinking problem. was a heavy thinker. Started thinking the minute I got up in the morning. Had, had thoughts in the middle of the afternoon. Had to have a few thoughts before I went to bed at night. Needed an, I needed an intervention. You know, it was clear. And I'm still, I'm still amazed. Almost, almost every time I, I do a, a meditation practice or especially a retreat and then and re- remember how my ordinary life is usually lived just about the only thing you can do is accept your essential foolish nature and when i when i'm able to really accept the fact that i'm a fool I relax. If you accept that you're foolish, you can make no mistakes. You're just acting out your nature, your true nature. <laughs> and this fool's path is not mean-spirited or demeaning. It's, it's really an honorable path. And, and it's a practice of realism, really. It's like accepting the first noble truth. You know, when you really embrace it, it has a lot to teach you. It's not, and it, it's not, 
personal, you're a member of a foolish species. Isn't that clear? Do you read the papers? (laughs) It's the human condition. And we're not to blame for that. Really. It's evolution's fault. That's been one of my deepest and most merciful insights. I am not my fault. <laughs> I didn't choose I didn't choose this body. I didn't choose to inhabit this body. I don't remember choosing. You know, uh, cattle there was no catalog of choices. How would you like to uh live in this uh, world? What form would you like to take? Would you like eyes in the front and the back? Would you like to swim, fly, or walk as your primary means of locomotion? You, you, don't, get it. you don't get a choice. You're, you get this brain. Scientists have discovered we don't have a brain. We have three. Three brains. Inside your skull right now is a fully functioning reptilian brain and a fully functioning mammalian brain. And the new human brain or neocortex. And one brain doesn't override the other brains. They're intimately interconnected. And there's serious evidence, growing evidence among scientists that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. (laughs) We're not so much rational animals as we are rationalizing animals. (laughs) Really. I mean, the brilliance of the brain, the brilliance of being human is that we are fooled into thinking that we're in charge. It's a great magic trick. I think that something went wrong when we stood up on two legs and we got this sense that we were really supreme because we were kind of above it all. And we were, uh, we are the alpha species, there's no question about it. We're the kings of the jungle, we rule. But this pride is really what makes us foolish. I don't know who, and I've been trying to find this on Google and Wikipedia. Some fool scientist decided to give us a new name, our species, Homo sapien sapiens. Twice wise. Twice knowing. You've got to be kidding we can barely know once. I, I, really, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's a name that's impossible for us to live up to. I think that maybe what they were kind of referring to is this mindfulness, this maha consciousness that 
knows that we know. And you know how hard it is to be mindful. But so the pride, you know, the pride of, of our species, uh, our group pride and our individual pride is really part of what makes us foolish. If we could accept that we're barely knowing, then, you know, we just go about our business and accept ourselves. How did we come to see ourselves as specially created and the whole universe was created for us? That's what we've come to believe. The latest estimate is that there are a hundred billion galaxies all made just for us. <laughs> just so we could see and be in awe and admire them. And This is Darwin from his secret notebooks. Man in his arrogance thinks himself a great work, worthy of the interposition of a deity. It is only our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. Darwin always said, never say higher or lower when you're talking about species. Every adaptation is a local adaptation for the sake of survival. He said when he was about to publish his, his theory, at the time of theory, uh, Origin of Species, he said in his secret notebooks, I feel like I'm committing murder. Human pride was the victim. The wife of the Bishop of Worcester on hearing of Darwin's theory of evolution supposedly exclaimed, Oh dear, let us hope that it is not true and if it is, let us pray it will not become generally known. Proof that we are a species of fools. Well, let's take the nuclear arms race. Some of you probably remember that. Boy, was that a dumb idea. At one point, the United States and the Soviet Union had enough nuclear missiles to blow up the entire planet ten times over. They even made up a new word to describe what they were doing. Overkill. Uh, the consolation may be that, you know, the second time they kill you, it doesn't hurt so much because you're already dead. But did the generals think we could be dead again communists or dead again Christians? And the theory was that if we can blow them up as many times as they can blow us up, then neither of us will try it. it the, official, the official doctrine was mutual assured destruction or MAD. That's what they, that was the acronym. And they knew that it was that acronym because when they developed smaller nuclear weapons that they thought they could use without triggering a big general nuclear war, they called it Nuclear Utilization Targeting Strategy, or NUTS. <laughs> so the Pentagon officially went from mad to nuts. 
global warming. I mean, I, I think beings in the, of the future, and hopefully there will be some that are smart and, you know, uh, will have a history book to tell them about what we were like. And they'll just shake their heads. They all, they had their individual, these individual boxes of steel and plastic. And they used to get in them. Each of them had one of their own. And they'd get in them and they'd kind of, it would run on this black liquid that they got from the other side of the planet that they had shipped over so that they could run or drive around in these little teeny boxes of steel and plastic, fouling their air. Just think we were totally nuts. Of course, who could have known, you know, that eventually everyone would have to have an automobile. This is uh, Heathcote Williams in a book called Autogeddon. If an alien were to hover a few hundred yards above the planet, it could be forgiven for thinking that cars were the dominant life form and that human beings were a kind of ambulatory fuel cell injected when the car wished to move off and ejected when they were spent. (laughs) And then... uh, Nigel Calder, a British scientist, uh, wrote a book called Timescale. He says, the master of the planet is obvious. It is grass. It has lured humans into being its slaves, cleaning, clearing trees and plants out of the way, making irrigation to ensure that the grasses grew tall. Especially wheat, rice, and maize have recruited battalions of both four-legged and two-legged animals to serve them. Fools. Why we, we always think we kind of know what the truth is. Like the world is flat. Remember? Do you remember when we believed that? Um, it still kind of looks flat, you know. Um, we don't remember, but people used to pray to Jupiter. And they thought Jupiter was watching and taking care of their prayers and or not, you know, mad at them. Isis, various deities like that. Now nobody pays any attention to them. Um, Ambrose Bierce once wrote a great piece called Where is the Graveyard of the Gods? Does anyone come to water their graves, their mounds? Gods who's, who millions of, millions of people worked and worshipped and built great monuments to these deities and now no one comes to even visit their graves. In spite of our constant revisions of knowledge, we still believe that our current understanding is the last word. The Firesign Theater, you remember them? They had an album they called Everything You Know Is Wrong. Very possible. Very likely. 
Poet Gary Snyder, if we humans are here for any purpose at all, except for collating texts, running rivers, and learning the stars, I suspect it is to entertain the rest of nature. We are a gang of sexy primate clowns. Clowns and fools are very related. Clowns are more the uh, physical fools, uh, always getting entangled with their shoelaces and bumping into things and falling over, making mistakes with trying to move the universe around, pieces of the universe. Whereas the fool is more of a mental uh, clown. Or the clown is a physical fool. You could even say it that way. If you see the clown in the circus, always uh, mimicking us, mocking us, has this big smile painted on or this big frown kind of mocking our moods, um, climbing up the ladder that's leaning against the wrong wall, looking for the hat that's already on his head, proving that the universe is really an impractical joke. Charlie Chaplin, a great clown. Uh, One of the greatest moments in film is when Charlie Chaplin gets caught in the machinery of modern times. A great metaphor for all of us. Of course, our machinery doesn't have those big gears anymore, but we're so caught up in our tools, you know. Do we rule our tools or do our tools rule us? Ask a 16-year-old. We, at least now we know what the opposable thumb is for. <laughs> we've been, we've been, that's been a mystery for most of our existence, and now we know. A path is, uh, of course, nothing without methods of realization. So I'm going to suggest to you this evening some practices that we can do to collectively acknowledge our foolishness because it really feels good. It really does. Um, Trust me. I think April Fool's Day, Day itself should be made an international holiday and people should have community gatherings where we... Confess our foolishness to each other. Sort of like the Jews, you know, uh, on the holy days, and they confess their sins to each other. We would be confessing our foolishness to each other. Acknowledging that we don't know why we're here, really. We don't know what we're supposed to be doing while we're here. We don't know what the hell's going on. (laughs) Nobody really knows. Can we accept it? So, the rituals. We'll need some rituals in these gatherings. Uh, we could do like a kazoo concert, I think. Everybody knows row, row, row your boat. You know, we could all, that would be kind of fun. Um, I suggest that small groups gather and practice Homer Simpson's forehead slapping ritual. Uh, let's try it here. So everybody, get, get your hand ready, okay? Now, 
everyone who believed that after the Soviet Union collapsed and the Cold War ended, things would get better in the world. Slap your forehead and say, dope, dope. Okay, those who believed in the purity of baseball or the Catholic priesthood or the American electoral process, dope. Okay, those who believed that Obama, once he became president, would solve all our problems, don't. Okay, those who believed that meditation would someday solve all their problems, don't. Those who believe that someday they are going to get it all together, don't. See? It, it just feels so good to really acknowledge the truth of the matter. For an individual practice, you could just in the morning look in the mirror. And see this being trying to look dignified, you know, um, the funny nose and Try uh, looking in the mirror and, and then doing some common poses that you put on during the day. Uh, you know, the serious look or the uh, flirtatious look. or <laughs> See the roles you play expressed on your face. And then, of course, look really closely and look at be- behind the face and look at the skull there just waiting to kind of come forward after your... Face falls off. (laughs) The fool's way of approaching meditation is really important. And I I tried to offer you some of that this uh, uh, evening in the guidance of the meditation practice. To really try to be light with yourself and See if you can put a, a little bit of a smile. I mean, the Buddha's smiling all the time, right? A little, tiny little grin, like almost like the Mona Lisa's, you know, a little thin grin. Bemused to some degree by the condition we find ourselves in. And um, just see, here, here's Chogyam Trungpa. See if you can do your meditation at the simple matter-of-fact level, instead of with some meaningful religious or philosophical undertone. In other words, have a sense of humor about what you're doing. Remember, things aren't as heavy as we think they are. Instead, they are floating above the ground, funny, swift, and lucid. I sometimes uh, do this little game where I, I... I try to uh, see the various scenes in my mind and the dialogues and stuff as part of a particular uh, entertainment venue. So sometimes I'm in my, I look in my head and there's the grand, grand opera is, is playing. Anguished arias, lots of bad blood, love, murder, matters of life and death, you know, Big stuff. Sometimes soap opera, it turns into soap opera, you know, with a little bit of overacting. 
Sometimes I look in my, my head and there's, there's a sitcoms going on, you know. Should I decorate the kitchen? What's happening with Brad and J-Lo? Uh, my wardrobe issues, you know. Sometimes American Idol is there, you know, and I'm rehearsing. I'm rehearsing my performance. Often, for me, the, I look in my head and the theater of absurd is playing. Questions like, what does it mean? And are we really I'm waiting for Godot to come? And, you know, it's just kind of like this meaningless, empty, oh, there must be something. Uh, sometimes Judge Judy is playing, who's at fault? It's kind of fun. It's fun, and it also is pointing to this great truth that we're all looking at generic situations. The mind, you know, the mind, the mind is it's a common condition that we're examining here. It's not so individual. One of my f- favorite mantras is it's perfectly human. Everything you see is perfectly human inside of you. Sometimes I use the mantra, it's only natural. Or sometimes I say it's perfectly natural, it's only human. (laughs) Can you live without certainty, without knowing? Can you develop a don't know mind and stop trying to figure it out and, you know, just relax? That's what many of the great sages tell you. Don't know mind. It's all a guess. One of the beauties of acknowledging our foolishness is that it makes us softer with ourselves, more forgiving, and softer with others too. Realizing that we're all kind of stuck in this quandary and Doing the best we can, and we're investigating and trying to see if we can figure it out, but it's okay. Rumi says, do you, think you, do you think I know what I'm doing or where I'm going next? As much as a ball knows where it's rolling or a pen knows what it's writing. I think developing that kind of don't know mind really helps us, brings us closer to the mystery itself. The questions are kind of wonderful and maybe can stimulate some awe and make us be in wonder about this existence that we're just kind of passing through. We can move from the realm of the foolish fool into the realm of the holy fool. I consider Jesus, Buddha, Socrates, holy fools. A fool, a foolish fool and his money are soon parted, but a holy fool gives his money away. A foolish fool is always lost, but a holy fool 
has no home, knows that everywhere he is is home. Dalai Lama came to Madison Square Garden once to do the heavy Kala Chakra uh, ritual of, of time, dealing with the great subject of time, existence. And the Tibetan horns were blowing in the pomp and circumstance and the lamas with the big hats came and sat down and he came out and they put him on this big cushion in front of it was Madison Square Garden and he sat down on the cushion and he bounced. <laughs> it bounced him. And he started laughing and he bounced again. <laughs> and he sat up there for a while bouncing and the horns are blowing and he I'll never forget when Thich Nhat Hanh first came to the United States and he came to the San Francisco Zen Center. It was one of his first uh, stops. I forget when it was, the late 80s, mid-80s. And he, I remember we were all sitting around, we were at the session in this wonderful Vietnamese monk and he said, when you meditate, smile. And the Zen students are, what? What is he saying? This can't be right. He was wonderful. He always had these, these gatas, these little sayings that he would use to remind him during the day about things that he was doing and that, uh, you know, the reality that he was in. He would say, the car goes fast means I go fast. And he, uh, one of my favorites, he said, breathing in, and I, breathing in, I am still water. Contemplating the empty nature of governments, I breathe out. <laughs> the holy fool sees the sun going down. And the eyes, his head, see the world spinning round. Remember as you acknowledge your foolishness that you are a member of a baby species. We're just, we just got these big brains. We don't know how to use them real well yet. We're getting better. You know, we've got this movement going on. We're getting better at understanding ourselves. Forgive yourself all the time. Embrace your, your foolish and wonderful human nature. Be proud to be a fool. Let me close with a little poem, and we might have some time for some interchange. Just a little poem by Lou Welch, great beatnik poet. Small sentence to drive yourself sane. The next time you are doing something absolutely ordinary, or even better, the next time you are doing something absolutely necessary, such as peeing, washing the dishes, cleaning the room, say to yourself, so, it's all come to this.
So do you have any foolish questions? Or comments? Other foolish guys? You know, a good joke? Yes. Okay. Um, I was a, a psychologist and I'm working in Milwaukee in the <coughs> counseling center and the judge sends me kids all the time. And he gives me six weeks of therapy. Kid walks in and he's not talking to me at all. And I said, what are you doing? He said, nothing. So I said, well, uh, I thought I'd teach him how to juggle. And then when he goes out of therapy, at least he can say he's a juggler. So I teach him how to juggle my supervisor walks in. <laughs> And uh, he watches me for a little while and writes a note and walks out. And at the end of the session, I go and I look at the note. And it says, a fool who persists in her folly will grow wild. <laughs> yes. So I went to clown school. You did? I became a clown as a therapy. I, I thought actually that kids and teach them about feelings and what I, especially kids who were in trouble were sick. That's great. That's great to use use that that kind of humor and you know. Wavy gravy, you know, you used to go to as a clown to hospitals, kids, kids' hospitals especially. And he tells the story of once the little boy had lost all his hair from chemo and Wavy showed a movie on his head, you know, had it, <laughs> used his head as a screen and had the kids, uh, he apparently loved it. Somebody, uh, if there's somebody who will run the microphone around, if if uh, anybody else. Oh, we don't have it tonight. Okay. Yeah. Can you? Well, if anybody has it, anybody has something else. That's okay. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Um, I have to say that um, one of my first, probably my first, um, thanks. Whoa. Um, <laughs> introductions to introduction to meditation um, was through Suzuki Roshi. I happened to luck on that, which of course was decades ago. Um, but my draw was that I thought he was so funny. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was <laughs> very funny. I thought, my God, monks have like the best sense of humor of anybody I know. <laughs> I just felt that way. I uh-huh. just, that was my immediate draw to them. And um, that they, they have that art of living in the foolishness uh-huh. things where, where maybe the mystery does happen. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, to, and, and that it amazingly enough, kind of brings clarity, you know, because you see through. It seems as if, you know, they... Um, I agree. I agree. It. And uh, I, I've actually been accused of people of being, like, too... not serious enough that I laugh too much and people don't take me seriously. And, you know, and I always... 
and I and I and I took that very personally for a while. <laughs> but you I know don't that, anymore. You know that 20, uh, 20 seconds of laughter equals about twenty minutes of cardiovascular exercise in terms of <laughs> really uh, this is uh, this is true. But I remember uh, uh, Suzuki Roshi once saying to to the group, "You are all perfect." just as you are, and you could use a little improvement. (laughs) (laughs) He was very funny, very light, very light. Well, it's kind of interesting, too, about, you know, how much we take seriously, you know, and just how ridiculous it is, you know, that we take things so seriously. and, And then, and our mind must trick us because how quickly we forget the, some of the things that we thought was so serious. <laughs> I'm like, can it happen any quicker than that? You know? <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah, some years ago, you were very close with the dough as far as being powerful tools for changing. Uh-huh. Duh. Duh. Exactly, because what happens is you're pushing your, the tongue off the roof of your mouth, which turns you right up to the medulla. You're resting your tongue, you get the size of a medium break away from the roof of your mouth after you said that, and you just let your body breathe so that you can easily fall into a meditative state from that. That's great. That's great. Is that the is that the count? The two hundred billion now? billion galaxies. Uh huh. And they how do they see that far? Yeah. <laughs> I, I heard that. I heard that the, the, when I read the, the statistic of a hundred billion galaxies, they said they estimated containing thirty to fifty billion trillion suns. Billion, thirty to fifty billion trillion suns. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know the Kepler Space Telescope is now finding hundreds of, of planets that could support life, right? In our, in, our, in our galaxy alone, they think there are thousands 
of planets that could support life. Yeah, there's, there's more planets than stars <laughs> in the Milky Way now, but it's just in Cancino or something like that. That's, that's, that's what I read something. But I, I think it's great news that, I, I think that, you know, there's probably a lot of life out there. And, and it takes the pressure off of us if we find it. <laughs> we no longer have to carry the entire burden of meaning in the cosmos, you know? They, yeah, you know, we've got, they have their own Buddhas and their own, maybe they're beings of light. Maybe, uh, one, we might be the only ones, but let's, let's pretend that we aren't. Uh, we pretended long enough that we're the only ones, so that did, hasn't worked out all that well. <laughs> but the, one of the planets that they found, uh, Gliese 581g, which is, uh, uh, goes around its sun every 37 days, I think. You know, the years just go whizzing by. But Gliese 581g is a couple, only a couple dozen light years from the Earth. So if there are living beings on that planet, they're just about to watch their first episode of I Love Lucy. <laughs> just coming in now and, you know, no reruns. This is the this is a original broadcast, you know? Are you are you an astrologer or an astronomer? <laughs> Yeah. Fascinating. I was curious about the size of the universe. Yeah. But they basically observe the universe. So it's like, after the Big Bang, 14.5 billion years ago, 13.7. And not only that, 13.7 billion years ago today. Anyway. Yeah, thank you, thank you. At, what a wonderful uh, practice, actually, a spiritual practice for me. Uh, my search engine, the first page that comes up when I go to my search engine, uh, internet, is the astronomy picture of the day. And they, these are NASA photos or, or compilations, pictures that, that they've, they've selected, and every day they have a new one, and it's just... Amazing, you know, pictures of new galaxies being discovered and stars being born and dying and, and uh, you know, celestial views and eclipses, you know, photos of eclipses and things. Fabulous. So, let's uh, just sit for a couple minutes before we leave, sit together. A band of fools... Charming fools, however.
we dedicate all our efforts to awakening to the liberation of all, the ultimate happiness of all. May all beings live with ease and well-being. Thank you all for coming tonight. Enjoy your life till our paths cross again. Blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.